how fun is it to have all these young worship leaders up here? Let's give them a hand. Praise God for you. Well, it's good to see you all this morning and uh, continuing in our series, working through different uh, sections of Proverbs, jumping around a little bit. And I was thinking, as it relates to our topic this morning, if you want to think for a second who it is in your life that you would point to, you would say, has the spiritual gift of messing with people. Anybody that you can think of, maybe a relative, an uncle, a friend, a spouse, somebody that just really enjoys messing with you. I, I know growing up, my, my father kind of had that little piece of him that would try to do things to, to mess with us. He, sometimes, I even remember one time getting my sister where he had, they, he had let, put Vaseline on the toilet seat. And like, I, I don't know what he was thinking with that. Maybe you have a friend. I know in college, I had a friend that did jello in the toilet bowl. Like, I don't know how it all comes back to bathrooms. But, uh, but how often there's that person that sets that trap from you. I had a specific friend named Doug that over at his house one time for a sleepover in high school, I remember he had a kitchen cabinet that going into leaving the kitchen, at, at, when we were going, heading to bed, I remember he, uh, as he's walking by, he suddenly, because it was dark, suddenly opened the kitchen cabinet. He walked by. It was right at face level. I, like, I still am feeling stars from the impact. Like though, That kind of friend of somebody that sets traps, messes with you, leads us to our topic this morning. You can see it in your notes. It's the idea, it's a trap. It's a trap. And what is it that makes a good trap? What is it that makes a good trap in your life? You think about what needs to happen is there needs to be something that's well hidden, right? It's uh, helpful when you don't see it coming. It's well hidden. It also has to have some kind of alluring bait to it that pulls you into the trap. So those are some of the things. And you think about the, the objects of a, a trap. Usually a lot of times in the, the, the wild, you have hunters. An animal might be the object of a trap. It's kind of weird to think in a spiritual sense, that we're actually the target of traps. 1 Peter 5, 8, we may be familiar with this. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, lion seeking someone to devour. In the spiritual realm, a lot of times we get freaked out with the idea of a devil, but that's part of the reality of our existence, that there is someone setting traps for us. When it says seeking someone to devour, it's not literally to eat, but the, thing, the truth is that Satan understands by, by setting traps and enticing us into sin, it can actually devour us, can leave us crippled and helpless in our walk with Christ. I've not golfed a lot, but a couple times with my dad, I remember being in Chicago on a golf course, and we uh, out in the, the fairway, I think that's what it's called, the long stretch, right? Uh, the fairway, I remember seeing just just tons of geese lined up. And I remember as we hit the golf ball, we're like, I don't know, is it going to be all right? Is it going to hit one of them? We're like, ah, whatever. And so you launch the ball. I remember walking up, getting closer and closer to this flock. Is that the right thing? Flock of geese, right? Flock of geese. And getting closer and you start to see like how many of them were hopping on, on one leg, one leg. And you're like, whoa, like move off the golf course, like pick a new spot. Because you see, when they're, they're, they're living in an environment where they're just hit time and time again, they're left helpless and struggling on this course. And I was thinking how similar that is in our own walks with Christ. The way that sin plays its role and function in our, in our life, so subtle over time, we don't realize it, that it, it's a, a vicious cycle 
where our heart gets hardened. The more we submit to sin, our heart gets hardened. We start to lose sensitivity to God's voice in our life. So all of a sudden, where we used to be this loud echo in our minds, now it gets softer and softer. Our eyes, our, our sight starts to get dimmed. We can't see quite as clearly as we used to. We can't navigate through things as well because we're entangled in sin. Typically sneaks in. James 1.13 paints the picture of how it works. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. Then... After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Death in a spiritual sense. You think about how that works. First enticing our own desires, then pulls us in, and it takes root and starts to grow in our lives. Back in high school, we did a family trip, a cross-country drive with the ultimate destination, the beautiful state of California. The destination was to go see, one of the things on the list was to see a, the Redwood Forest. Have you guys been before? Seen just the mass of trees there? Fantastic. We have a picture there of some of those. I was reading some of the statistics on them that even this week about some of the trees growing, to, the largest ones known to grow to 367 feet tall. If you can picture that, that's longer than the length of a football field if it was turned upwards. That's crazy. Over three stories high, 22 feet at their base basically a skyscraper, if you will. You think about that, how it all starts, though. It all starts all the way back, and you know you've probably heard this illustration of sin before in 1984, but uh, the, it all starts all the way back with a seed the size, literally the size of a tomato seed. That it starts where it takes root, it, it gets put in the soil of, of repeat offense, of going back into the same sin pattern, and before you know it, it starts to grow, starts to take root, starts to entangle, starts to encompass actually who we are. That's the way that sin works in our life. That's why there's traps that are set. Because it can leave us either crippled like, a, like a, a goose on a golf course or with a sin so large that we're blinded to everything around us. So the trap that I want to look at, though, that's primarily one that can really get a hold of the, the church is the trap of offense. The trap of offense. You might see it in your notes there, driven from Proverbs 18, 19. says this, An offended brother is more unyielding than a fortified city, and disputes are like the barred gates of a citadel. You don't have to look very, very far across the landscape of the church to find how many just countless, uh, countless believers that are imprisoned in the trap of offense, the trap. In fact, John Bevere wrote in his book, The Bait of Sentence, actually came up with that title, The Trap of Offense, and really the cycle that it works through is this. Typically, someone wrongs us, whether it's perceived or actual. When we've been wronged, we have a choice of how we respond to it. We're hurt. We're offended. We come to a crossroad to either extend grace or hold a grudge. Too often, 
we choose the, 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 the grudge route, choose to hold on to that offense, choose to, to, to place that person often in the, in the enemy camp, if you will, choose to write their name on the list and be, we use nice terms in church world. We're like, yeah, I don't really connect with that person. We don't really get along very well. But basically, it's a nice way of saying they've become an enemy to us. We've crossed them off the list. Before we know it, more offenses occur because it's a guarantee in life. More offenses occur. And that list maybe started small with one or two people. Over accumulation of years, that list gets longer and longer and longer. And the people that have offended that we've cut off becomes greater and greater. And our heart grows colder and colder. And you know what also happens? Our list of expected behavior starts to grow greater and greater. And it's a vicious cycle that happens and leaves too many Christians crippled. Leaves them basically bound in unforgiveness because they've held on to the wounds and offenses that people have had in their life. You think about the examples of how this plays itself out. You think about how, how little it takes of somebody saying something hurtful to you, a conversation over the dinner table, or whether it's a coworker you heard say something derogatory about you, or whether, whether it's a, a spouse that raised their voice, it doesn't take long for us to become offended. And the question is, how do we respond to offense in our life? You find that out, you find out that you've been wronged, and, and how do we respond? Typically, it's we're the most offended by those that are closest to us, Right? You ever notice that? Love Psalms 55, 12. David talks about his experience. I don't know if he's directly referring to his relationship with Solomon, but listen to this. It says, If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were raising himself against me, I could hide from him. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship as we walked with the throng at the house of God. This picture of someone that was once close to him, when we've been offended by someone close, they're sometimes the hardest ones to release for, or extend forgiveness to. The closer someone is, the, it seems like the expectation list starts to get greater and greater, doesn't it? We have greater expectations for those that are, that are close to us. We require certain behavior. Do you have someone in your life like that or that, that you're like, man, just seems like they have so many expectations of being around them. It just seems like it's a guarantee that I'm going to offend them. Do you have somebody like that in your life? Just somebody that you're like, man, I, I feel like I can't get anything right because it's a guarantee that they're going to be offended. Maybe somebody, unfortunately, is thinking of me or you right now when they make that list. See, the truth is, it's a guarantee that we're going to be offended. It's going to happen. Like, you can't navigate through billions of people on a planet that are kind of living for themselves, doing their own thing, and not expect that there's going to be offense, that there's going to be some stumbling and stepping on each other's toes. That's part of the human experience. But the choice is how we respond to it. How do we respond to it? Breaks my heart in church world how often somebody is just like, man, there's one offense within the church. Then they're on to the next church. And then that, that next church, guess what? There's, there's people there too. And, and, and then they offend them. And then there's that, that hurt and moving on to the next. Like the, there's so many people that get stuck in that cycle of not appropriately dealing 
with offense. In Proverbs 18, 19 that we just read a minute ago, what did it describe the offended person as? It described him as a citadel. A citadel is a stronghold that people go into shelter during battle, basically build up of four walls around it. And quite a picture, if you think of ourselves as being that person, being a citadel, that we build up walls around us. And what do we do? We push other people on the, on the outside of you. You're like, I'm not letting you in. You did that to me. You said that about me. You, you, you caused that pain. And because of that, I am cutting and shutting you out. I am shutting you out. But here's the question that I have for us this morning. Point to me where in Scripture we're granted permission to do that. Where, we, where, where do we see that? Where do we see that we're allowed? How can we be on the receiving end of such grace and not be willing to extend it to others? How can we just bask in God's forgiveness and, his, and, and, and what he's extended and done on our behalf and be like, nope, not going to do it. Not going to extend grace. Going to hold on to this. It's kind of ironic if we're honest with ourselves how it plays out. When someone's offended us, when someone has wronged us, we're like, we, we slip into the, hey, come on, cut me a break. I'm only human. Like, that's, I messed up. Like, we go into that camp. But when someone's offended us, we're like, how could they do that? Why would they say that to me? I am not forgetting. You know what I mean? You, you go into this mode where we are expecting grace, but what we, what we extend to others is the exact opposite. So here, the crossroads that each one of us comes to is how do we deal with offense? How do we respond? Do we, do we think that, you know what? I'm just going to keep on punishing that person and leaving them on the outside of the wall. But really, the truth is, what are we actually doing? When we build walls around us, we're keeping others out, where actually the ironic thing is we're trapping ourselves, right? Think about that picture. You're inside the citadel. Guess who's actually trapped? Just the opposite of who we think. So there's a process of stepping out of the trap. And I put the word stepping because it's not a one-time thing. It's not just a, okay, I'm out. It's like, Man, I step out and there's another offense and there's another offense. And so that's why in the interaction with, with Peter and Jesus, he's asking, well, how many times do I keep forgiving somebody? What was Jesus' response? Not just seven times, 77 times. And the point wasn't even there that you're like, okay, well, I've got, I know somebody that's offended me 77 times where we're on. Uh, like, no, the point is you just keep on doing it. You step out, you step out, you're offended, you step out. It's an ongoing process in the life of a believer that we have to get right. We have to figure it out. Because if we don't, you know what it does? just eats us up from the inside out. Leaves a cold and empty and absent of joy. You can see somebody that's an offended person from a mile away because of their face, right? They're just absent of joy because they've clung on to things for way too long without permission in Scripture to do it. Where do we fall in this? If you, if you think about it, what's the reasoning or the main primary thing that keeps us from forgiveness? The main thing, the primary thing, if we're really going to peel off all the layers, is a simple word. It starts with a P. Who can guess? Pride. Pride. That's the, that's the core thing. 
That's the thing that doesn't cause us. I was, I was listening to a message by Andy Stanley, and he was giving me a list. He's talking about all these things that pride diminishes our capacity for. It, it diminishes our capacity for to admit that I was wrong. You're like, man, I, I'm not saying I'm wrong. I'm not going to do that. I'm not giving them that pleasure. I'm not going to bend a knee to them. Dig in. Why? Pride won't cause it. We won't, we won't, it also diminishes our capacity to apologize. You're like, apologize is the verbalizing part. You're like, I'm not saying I'm sorry. Not till they've said what they've done, right? We go into that mode. Pride digs in our heels or maybe we give one of those nice fake apologies. I, I love the ones, well, I'm sorry you got hurt. <laughs> Think about that for a second. I'm sorry you got hurt because you're so pathetic and weak. Like, no, that, like, that, that's not a real apology. A real apology, I'm sorry, I blew it. I shouldn't have done that. That's a real apology. Pride keeps us from those words. Pride also diminishes our capacity to acknowledge the impact of our actions, to acknowledge that, hey, what I did, I acknowledge that what I did hurt you. Will I humble myself and admit that, that what I did hurt you? Pride keeps us from that or keeps us from saying what needs to be said. It keeps us from hearing what needs to be heard. That we need to say like, I hear what you're actually saying. It's funny how our pride digs in and we no longer have the ability to hear what the other person's saying. You think about the different debates or arguments we get in, pride sneaks in and your ears are shut off. Like you're just constantly thinking about what you're saying or your response or your rebuttal next. Pride keeps us from hearing what needs to be heard. Pride keeps us from love or receiving love. That's the root of it. Pride is a prison, and it shuts God out and shuts us in. You think about it. So the steps towards forgiveness, just want to talk about just some practical things for that, because a lot of times, if we're honest, we found ourselves in that place, and you get there, and you're like, I don't know how I became this person. I don't know how, how, how that took root. I don't know how that little seed that maybe started years ago, and you can't even remember what silly thing they maybe did or said, and you're like, how did that set a course? But it's here now, and how do I get out? How do I get out of that? Steps towards forgiveness. Just some practical thoughts on this. The first one, I wrote the word choose. You'll never forget if you wait until you feel like it, Right? Forgiveness is an act of obedience in one's life. You have to literally make the choice and say, I'm going to release you from that. I'm going to release you. I'm, I'm going to choose uh, to not listen to the, the lies of bitterness that, the, that the, the enemy wants to keep planting in your mind. I choose to release you from that. Rely, I put the word rely. I think that's an important piece too. So many times you're like, we try to do this in our own strength, but the truth is it starts with us saying, all right, I, I chose obedience because I have a choice in this, but now I'm not gonna try to do it in my strength. I'm gonna say, all right, I'm gonna rely on you, Holy Spirit, to guide me through this, to walk me through this process because I'm not able to in my own strength. Anybody come to that conclusion with forgiveness? Man, it's hard. Rely, cling to him. Be willing to call out and say, God, I can't do it on my own. I need your help. How about this word? This is one that a lot of us have good intentions but don't act on. The word initiate. Initiate. Initiate even if they don't reciprocate. 
A lot of times we think, well, I, we forecast ahead. And we're like, well, I know if I do this, they're going to do this, and they're not going to even do this, and they're not going to own their... Like, we start playing out the scenario that hasn't even happened based on past experiences. Like, like don't worry about it. Just initiate. Take care of your actions. Guess who you're responsible for? At the end of the day, who you have to answer for? You. You have to answer for you. Re- initiate. What if, what if God Almighty said, you know what, I'm not going to do this cross thing because I know how they're going to respond. I know that very few of them are going to embrace what I've done for them on the cross. What if, what if God and Jesus are having this conversation pre-cross? Like, no, Jesus made the choice that says, I'm going to initiate regardless of how they choose to respond. Regardless, I'm going to do this, I'm going to pursue reconciliation, and then they have a choice on how they choose to respond. Initiate. The word pray. I know that's a nice church word, but it's a key one in all of this. Luke 6.27 says this, But I say to you who hear, it's an important piece that you hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Wow, that's tough stuff. That's difficult, but if you think about it, how practical that is, how hard is it to stay really mad at somebody that you're consistently praying for? Like if you got somebody and you're bringing them before the Lord, just regular, dear Lord, please do a work, bless them, uh, expand their territory, use them mightily in their field, soften their heart, you're praying for that person. How hard is it to stay bitter and mad at somebody that you're consistently praying for? It's just a practical t- invitation in Luke, second part of that invitation, the same verse, what does it say? To bless. Bless those who curse you. In the Greek, bless means, uh, bless means to speak well of. To speak well of. Curse is just the opposite. It means to speak evil of. So think of that scenario. When someone's speaking evil of you, you're to speak well of them. That's hard stuff. Remember, that's why we went back to the part of like rely. We can't do this on our own. It's hard to do that, but the choice is there to stop, to release. You can't be a gossip. You can't keep bringing it, it, bringing it up. You can't continue to dwell on it and talk about it. People are like, well, I'm, I'm just venting. I'm just getting it out. Stop venting. Like choose to bless rather than curse. How are we doing on this? How are we doing this? As a church, if we were to be graded, how would we, how would we get, like if, if we were having a, a letter written to us, like one of the ones in, in, in Revelation, how would we be graded on this as individuals? How are we doing it for, with releasing? What's our list look like? Has it grown just higher and higher? And you're like, well, I just don't like that person. I mean, you just don't get it. Like, how many people are actually on that list? What phone call do we need to make this afternoon? What, what, what response do we need to have in, in, in an appropriate God-honoring way? In the words of Disney, let it go, right? <laughs> How many of us need to release that grudge and just say, you know what, I'm, I'm just done with this. I'm not gonna, I don't have permission to hold on to this offense. I don't have permission to. I can't do that. My hope and prayer and through this whole series as we brought up a number of different topics is all of these have been a little bit of a pause button to maybe dig into some areas that have maybe set up camp maybe in the back room of your heart where you're like, ah, I've just kind of allowed that. I haven't dealt with it. My prayer and hope this morning is this would be a day that you're like, you know what? 
I'm going to deal with that. I'm going I'm to address that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call that person. I'm going to make that right. I'm going to choose to start. What, what if we just did the prayer thing? What if for the next seven days, the person that you know you've got that issue with, that's been rooted for so long, what if you just started for the next seven days saying, I'm just going to start praying for that person. Just pray for them every single day. What, what could God do in your heart? What could God do in that person's life? It could be drastic, just a simple step, a simple takeaway. I fully understand that this is a deep thing. This is a deep topic, a sensitive one. I want to spend the remainder just of our time. We just have a few more minutes as we wrap up. And I want want to look at a couple of Proverbs. For me, there's something about sometimes letting Scripture wash over us. just want to look at just five different verses. not going to talk about them. We're just going to read them together. I'm going to put them on the screen. Allow the Holy Spirit to do a work in your life. Just look at these. Look at this first one. Proverbs 17, 9. This is what we're told to do. Love prospers when a fault is forgiven, but dwelling on it separates close friends. 15, 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Look at that word, all. This last one here, Proverbs 19, 11. Good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Let me pray for us. God, this morning we fully acknowledge the challenge that this is. So hard to release offense. Someone's wronged us. I'm not naive enough to stand up here and recognize that there's some offenses that have occurred in this room that that are serious, people are dealing with. Saying, Scott, you don't understand what I've been through, what what I've had to endure. But the truth is, the one that's trapped isn't them. God, I pray that you'd release us that you'd set us free, that you give us the opportunity to, to, to let go and to choose forgiveness. We need you for that, God. We need your strength. We need you to prompt us even this week. We need you to remind us to make that call. God, I'm confident if we take steps in this, you'll do the healing in our heart. You'll re- rebuild us, restore us. You're so good. You're so faithful. We praise you here this morning in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I forget who said it, but forgiveness is the best dance you could ever boogie to. Go, go with that. If we can be of prayer support this morning, we have a few leaders that will be available. This once a month we give towards our deacons fund as you're leaving if you'd like to participate in that. Otherwise, have a wonderful week in the Lord. God bless you.